Father, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to spend some time in your word and to learn more and particularly to be taken back to these encounters, these meetings that Jesus, you had with people. And we pray that we might learn from that now in Jesus' name. Amen. In week one of this series, Anthony uh, looked at the story of the crippled man who arrived actually at the, where Jesus was in a rather dramatic way, being lowered down through a roof. But more importantly, he leaves a changed man, a man who is a friend of Jesus, a man who is forgiven of his sins, and a man, rather than being taken back up through the roof, <laughs> he picks up his mat and actually walks out knowing the power of God in his life. But he left with these words ringing in his ears, friend, your sins are forgiven. Last week, Danny looked at six meetings that following succession in the book of Luke in chapters 18 and 19. And as they unfold, they pare back our understanding of uh, money in our life, wealth in our lives. But at the heart and, uh, of this and these meetings is salvation. And at the climax of these six meetings, Jesus speaks these words to Zacchaeus. Salvation has come to this home today. And Danny reminded us through these stories that as people, we need to come to Jesus with humility, with a childlike faith, and with a heart that is willing to say, God, have mercy on me. Unless we come this way, we'll never understand or appreciate who Jesus really is. Today, we're looking at the meeting between Jesus and the father who brought his son to Jesus. Well, actually, he took him to the disciples first, his son, to have an evil spirit driven out. We find this in Matthew 17, Luke 9, and also in Mark 9. And if you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to turn to Mark 9. Um, of the three Gospels, Mark goes into the most detail uh, of this story, especially around the exorcism, the driving out of the Spirit. The interesting thing is that each of the Gospels, for a few days or weeks, uh, follow closely the chronology of Jesus. And you hear words like, the next day or in six days, these sorts of things. The Gospels are not only in harmony here, the three of them are very much in sync uh, together. And so when we turn to Mark 9, verse 1, it starts with this. It says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain. This is where the transfiguration takes place. And there are three other events that happen in this little uh, group of verses in the, in these in the Gospels. They, uh, the next day they come back and they meet a crowd where the father is who wants the boy, his boy to be healed. Uh, we find that they travel on to Galilee where Jesus prophesies again that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. And then they go on to Capernaum where we find that the, uh, the disciples are arguing amongst each other about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Just a quick paraphrase of 
the transfiguration which happens from verses 1 through to about 13 or 14 in uh, chapter 9. Uh, Jesus takes Peter, James and John up the mountain and when he arrives there, he, he changes in appearance. He becomes white or bright. And not only that, two other figures appear, Moses and Elijah, and they converse. We don't know what they say to each other. <laughs> um, but then in verse 7 we read this, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud and says this, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now we've heard these words before about that uh, when Jesus was baptised, uh, we heard uh, the father speak. He said, this is my son whom I love and am well pleased. But here he says, listen to them, to him. These words, listen to him, were spoken to these three disciples. But as we go through this uh, group of verses, we find they gain a lot of weight and they transfer on to the other disciples. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And I would encourage you that this cry, these words are for us today. Listen to Jesus. We pick it up in verse 14. And it says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law were arguing with them. And in verse 16, Jesus says to them, what are you arguing with them about? At this point, we get introduced to the father. And what's noted is that we're not quite sure where the boy is at this stage, whether he's there or in the crowd, we, we actually don't know. In Mark, verse 17, it says, a man in the crowd answered this question, teacher, and I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit. And then he goes into great detail about that. And he finishes by saying, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. In Matthew, we get this. When they came to the crowd, a man approached them, knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. I, and then he goes into detail as well, but he finishes with, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And then in Luke, we get the next day they came down from the mountain and a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And he goes into detail, but then he finishes with, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Though we can make the story much more complete by putting all the little different pieces together that come out of the three Gospels, there's one clear point that we can take away from this. And that is, and we assume it's the nine disciples that didn't go up to the mountain, um, had failed. They had failed to be able to drive out the evil spirit. And this is what the argument was about. You know, in this modern age, we might say the boy actually had epilepsy. 
But we know in Scripture and, and throughout Jesus' life that there was many other times when Jesus healed people, whether from blindness, being crippled, leprosy, lots of things. And on none of these occasions do they get attributed to an evil spirit. No, it is quite clear here that there is a spiritual battle going on. And this child is the focus of that. And that it serves as a strong reminder of this truth. That Satan is a strong adversary. And that sin is a powerful force that works in our lives. The father knows it. He knows that this son of his, his only son, has an evil spirit working and acting on his life. And that the only help he can have for this is to get uh, God to work on his son's life. To ask Jesus for help. And so in Matthew, we see he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. And in Luke, he says, I beg you, I begged your disciples. His plea is to the only one who can help. This expression, have mercy on me. I wonder if you've ever uttered these words in a prayer. It made me think, have I ever actually said that? Or have you actually ever prayed, God, have mercy on this person, this friend of mine? You know, there are a number of times that people cry out to Jesus, whether from the roadside or whether confronting him, they cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. In the face of sin, Jesus is the only one who can overcome. In the face of evil, Jesus is the only one who can overcome. And last week, in the, the stories that Danny shared with us, the first one, the Pharisee and the tax collector, we heard the words of the tax collector who couldn't even lift his eyes towards God with his head down, beating his chest, going, God, have mercy on me. And in verse 18, we move on and it says, the Father says, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. And so I'm asking you for mercy. Jesus responds in verse 19. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replies. How long, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring, bring the boy to me. Unbelief provokes a strong response in Jesus. You know, as I thought more about this, it made me realise how lonely Jesus must have been at times. He's had this mountaintop experience. And then he's gone down to the valley. The scene he descends into 
into a picture of human tragedy and failure. You know, this crowd, it's a micro version of the world, the world throughout history, where our young people are in the grip of evil, parental anguish, disciples failing, scribes or leaders arguing, critical and hostile. Let's take a moment and think about that. Are we an unbelieving generation? Do we see any signs of this? Our youth and family struggling? Do we have cause for concern that followers of Jesus are falling away? Struggling? Do we see our church leaders providing leadership or are they lost in debates of points of difference? Hmm. Unbelieving. What it means in this context is without divine persuasion. There's no faithfulness. It's unfaithful. It's a want for faith. And we see throughout Scripture that we use words like unbelief, unfaithfulness, distrust, when we're talking about that which is unbelief. I think also this adds, for me, some dimension or depth to some of the things that Jesus said. Take this cup from me, because I can't take it any longer. I'm eager for this supper because I've had enough. It is finished. Oh, I'm so glad it is finished. This burden that I've carried, particularly in my humanity, to continually look on this broken, unbelieving world, In the parable of the persistent widow, Jesus poses this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith or belief? In John 16, Jesus speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit and he says these words. When he comes... He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people, listen to this, sin because people do not believe in me. Unbelief is sin. You know, prior to this, Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out and we read it in Mark 6, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. But now they can't. What's happened? Have they stopped believing? Stop believing that Jesus has victory over all evil, all sin. <clears throat> it's noted that Jesus doesn't go straight to the boy, to heal him. 
but rather he sets the scene like he does in other times. He senses something's wrong and he needs to correct, and particularly the disciples. But now he turns his attention to the boy. In verse 21 through 23, we read this. How long? How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy, his father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. I can just hear Jesus saying, how long? How long must I put up with this? But then he says anything. Anything is possible if a person believes. What do we hear when we read these words? What do we imagine or expect? Everything is possible for one who believes. Jesus turns it back to the Father. This becomes a matter for the Father's belief, just as it does for us. What is it to believe? And what is it to mean everything? The Father's response in 24 is instant, and he cries out, I do believe but help me overcome my unbelief. And the word belief means to entrust, to have faith in. But it's also this, it is something that is passed on. This belief is God giving birth to faith. It is something that is sacred. It is where we are persuaded that by God. This is not a Disney belief. This is not where I shut my eyes and go, I believe, I believe, I believe. No, this is where God gives birth to something where everything is possible. And it's where belief means we believe in Jesus. A way to understand possible is to ask ourselves the question, what is impossible? And we heard these words last week when Jesus was teaching the disciples and he says, what is impossible for people is possible with God. And in the context of that, we know that Jesus is talking about salvation. See, salvation, we are unable, it's impossible for us. We are powerless to save ourselves from sin or evil. But God is able. He is powerful, mighty, strong. He can overcome sin and evil. And so Jesus now goes on to demonstrate this again to those that are there. And we pick it up in verse 25. 
And he says, When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieks and convulses him violently and came out. The boy looks so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet and stood him up. That image, how beautiful is that? And it's what he wants to do with each of us. <laughs> but we read in verse 28, there's an unresolved issue. And the disciples take Jesus aside privately and they ask, why? Why couldn't we drive it out? In Mark it says, this kind can only come out by prayer. And it does pose a question, what were they trying to do to get the Spirit out, actually? But Matthew records it this way. He replied, Because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. It's not the quantity of faith, it's the quality. Mountains, we all have them. Difficulties in our life, and in Isaiah, and particularly in Zechariah chapter 4, we read, What are you, O mount, mighty mountains? They are something that God flattens, and he flattens them to replace them with the capstone, that is Jesus. Everything is possible for the one who believes. For a moment, consider everything. It means every little piece every part, every part of me. Listen carefully to what I'm saying, Jesus tells us. For he, and it goes on into uh, verse 31, 32 to say this to the disciples. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to deliver in, be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Everything is possible for one who believes. Every little piece, every little part of me can possibly believe and know Jesus. They are left with these words in their ears. Against this backdrop of their failure, of the Father's cry, deal with my unbelief. We find that everything is possible. Against the backdrop of human tragedy and failure, consider this, that everything is possible for one who believes. Everything is possible. And it begins with us saying, have mercy on us. 
And expect this, that every thought, every word, every act, that every, to go down into my heart and my soul, that every motivation, that every desire, every part of me believes. It believes. And to take Paul's words and turn them around, this is when I do what I want to do. And it's when I don't do the things I don't want to do. It's possible. Jesus is saying to the disciples, the Father, to you and me and to a broken world, that everything is possible. That every part of me can believe this amazing truth. Belief, it is a sacred thing that only God can give birth to. It is where every part of you and me is persuaded that Jesus is God's beloved Son who came to save us all. (laughs) What follows? Well, they go to Capernaum and the disciples still argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom. (laughs) How long must I put up with them? Oh, To me, this sounds so familiar. We have to work out our salvation. We have to let this truth work through our lives. Let us pray. Therefore, my dear friends, have you, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that is here. That we can know every part of us knows that Jesus is your son and that that he came to rescue, to save us and to put us to overcome sin and evil and to place us with you for eternity. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.